welcome to episode 44 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Friday, July 10th, 2020. Big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Just fine. It's like this weird summer whirlpool. I don't know where the time goes. True. And then we had sun, so it didn't even feel like summer. We had a whole week of sunshine. I know. Today's a little foggy. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been beautiful, and it's the, the days are just zipping by, which is weird because it's not like we're doing anything new from <laughs> March, April, May, June. We're in July now, though, so <laughs> I, just, I had to think That's how far I mean. you had to go with that list. Yeah. Totally. Although we have something new in our house. We're recording on Friday because yesterday was my big kid's driving test, which he passed on the first time. Thank you very much. So he's very excited. We didn't realize that the DMV was up and running. So yeah, they were pretty quiet about it. He does drive test already scheduled and it got canceled because of everything. And they were reopening for other things, but not drive tests. And then they made an announcement that they were they were starting to reschedule all the drive tests. But they didn't send me any notice, which you would have thought would be helpful in case I don't, you know, stalk the DMV blog. Yeah. Um, but I saw someone that I knew who posted that her daughter got hers. And she said they didn't send her anything either. And she was like on day two of the reschedules. So I went online and checked and they're like oh yes your appointment is scheduled oh so my goodness well it was that... and they did call me the day before to say hey you have an appointment we're not telling you when it is you need to go online and check but it's tomorrow <laughs> which I mean if I had a job where I had to be at it you know on a schedule I'm not quite sure what he was supposed to do anyway got done so that's exciting congratulations big kid pretty proud of him but everything on this will continue to be normal on the needles, on the easel, on the table, on the nightstand. And then bingo, because, you know, bingo season. So should I talk about knitting? Yes, please. So it's going to be a pretty exciting segment. We have a lot of new things. Um, awesome. But one new thing that's not super exciting is Ravelry's new design, which they sprung on us. I mean, it's probably a month ago now. If you are a frequent RAB user, I'm sure you've heard, it is causing migraines and seizures and all kinds of awfulness for a lot of people. And the response has not been as fast as people would have hoped. There is a great deal of disappointment in the community. The point of that is that I did want to issue a warning. The links in our show notes to my patterns are still going to Ravelry. So if that is an issue for you, please don't use my links or at least be aware that is where they go. I'll try and post more Instagram, which causes fewer problems for people as far as I know. They're, um, gonna, but, they're aiming to fix this and iron it all out, right? One would assume so, but I would have thought the response would be, let's just flip it back till we solve it. But they are not doing that. They're said they can't do that. They're apparently have been slow to respond to the issues, not offering a lot of solutions. So yeah, it's Hmm. pretty disappointing. And as someone else said, kind of off brand for them, that's not accessibility and safety is one of their big 
big things. So I don't know. I mean, I have issues with it. It is a little bit harder to read though. I, I was not, but you know, it's got cute little icons now. I kind of like those, but. You'll be shocked to learn that I have not climbed on there in the past two weeks. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there was no announcement. It just showed up one day. It was like, Oh my oh, gosh. Okay then. Or, you know, not that I saw. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on their news page, so maybe they did say something. So anyway, so actual knitting. I have a finished object and three new projects. So how fun is that? So I finished my porthole cowl. Hooray. Yeah. I talked about that a lot last time. I don't want to talk about it too much, but I did actually finish it. I love it so much. And I was kind of sad we were having all this sun because I almost didn't want to go out and take finished object photos because it was hot. And wearing a big, long infinity cowl was not what I wanted to be doing, but I persevered for my art. <laughs> it's so nice. I could, it maybe could have been like an inch longer, but it's long enough to do a double wrap or to do it as a single loop. I think the colors look great. It's super soft and squishy because it's basically a double thick layer. It's blues and creams and light browns, and it's just great. So I'm very excited about that. And that yarn was a Dorn sock and Westerly Sea Sock from Three Irish Girls that was in my stash since 2009. So it was good to finally get use out of that. And the pattern is by Knitting Expat Designs. No, and I do have a photo on Instagram, so you can check it out there. Okay, I will. While I was waiting for the four-day sweater knit along to start, I got started on a couple of kits that I had received. The first one is the Criterion Cowl by Casapinka. That kit I got with her through Lady Dye Yarns. And it was a Sherlock Holmes, or a, more of a Sherlock, like the Benedict Cumberbatch TV show Sherlock-based kit. So it came with three sets of mini skeins in two shades of pink, a light one and a hot pink, and then a gray. And so it's called A Study in Pink, because that was the first episode of that series. And apparently there are secret messages hidden in the cowl pattern, which I have not figured out yet, but that was fun. Like you have to decode it? I guess so. Yeah. So I haven't figured out, you know, like, um, whatever, Madame Defarge apparently encoded secret messages in her knitting. Uh, Okay. That's fine. Um, But I haven't, I haven't figured that out. I've just been enjoying the knitting on that. So it's different sections and like one is in um, garter stitch and then there's a lace pattern and then there's a different lace pattern and then there's some stripes. The sections are fairly small, maybe 12 rows or so. So you get into the pattern and then you get to change it up. So it's definitely keeps your interest and you want to keep knitting it. None of the patterns are too complicated so I could do it while watching TV and whatnot. So that was good. And the colors are Mrs. Hudson Moriarty and Irene Adler. So that was kind of fun. And it came with some stitch markers as well and a couple of pins, one of which says I am Sherlocked, which is something from the show. The pattern as well, which was designed for the yarn. I think that's it. Anyway, it was very fun. (laughs) So I'm enjoying that. And then I also started uh, Bautista by Celia McAdam Cahill. And that was designed for a colorway of yarn um, by Invictus Yarns that I got as part of my retreat that I was supposed to go on this spring. They got canceled, but we had already ordered the yarn and whatnot. So um, every year they find a dyer to dye a colorway for us. And there's usually on a couple different bases. So this one was this beautiful blue-green 
Shocking, I know that I would love that so much. Um, and I picked it on the Yak Lux base. So there's, I forget what else is in there, but definitely some uh, Yak yarn. So it's very drapey and lovely. And they had um, announced the pattern as well, which is a shawl pattern, kind of a long crescent with a lace edge. So I thought that that yarn would make it nice and drapey. Um, and so far it is, I've only done a very little tiny bit. It's, I think it's knit sideways more or less. So you're kind of knitting the whole thing, the plain middle part and the lacy border all at once. Um, so it does actually become something that I have to pay attention to because it's all kind of different. I'm assuming once I get into the main body of the shawl, I'll be able to do it a little more autopilot, but right now it is not that. So again, fun and enjoyable, but put both of those aside because the four day sweater knit along from Marie Green uh, Olive Knits has started. And this one, she's going a little more loosey goosey. I guess because so many people were, and this is how I did it, was kind of counting the hours and not trying to do an actual four day knit along because that just wasn't really gonna happen. Um, so she's giving you 16 to 32 days to knit it based on your size. So I'm still keeping track of my hours, trying to keep to that <laughs> 16 day. The pattern released on July 1st, the official cast on day was July 4th. So I might be able to do it. I'm about halfway through. It's looking beautiful. It's called the Soundtrack Pullover. And my yarn is from Neighborhood Fiber Company. This one is a yoked sweater. So it's mostly one color, but then in the yoke, it's stripes of your contrast color. So for my main color, I got um, the colorway Broadway Market, which is a really dark charcoal gray. Actually, it's not really dark. It's a medium dark charcoal gray. And then for my con contrast color, I got Ward Circle, which is this bright, bright blue. So it's a really nice contrast. The only issue I had was I needed four skeins of the Studio DK in the main color, which they had but they called me to say that one of them was significantly darker than the other three. And they were happy to re-dye a new batch for me if I wanted, or they could send it on, whatever I wanted. And I was like, oh, I want to get my yarn. <laughs> I just want to start, I don't want to wait. Cause I wasn't sure how long it would take them, you know, dyeing a whole new batch, I'm sure is complicated and then sending it out and waiting. And so I was like, ah, eh, just send it, I'll make it work. And it is definitely really dark, but it's okay. So I think I've made it work. So I'm um, alternating skeins through the top part and then kind of did a fade once I got past the blue. So you can definitely tell, but I mean, it's, it is technically the same color. So it doesn't look like different colors. It's just different shades. So it does kind of look more like a semi-solid, I guess, for the top part. And it's mixed in with the blue. So it's not totally obvious. Does it look in more intentional? Yeah. 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 I, think. I mean, I haven't finished the whole thing. So I saved, I still have, I don't know, a good bit of the darker one. I'm gonna do that at the top of the sleeves as well. I tried it on, it didn't look horrible. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't look at it and going, ooh, I'm not gonna ever wear this. So obviously it would have been better if I had the four skeins that all matched and they were totally willing to do that. And what I really should have done was said, maybe is there a different gray that would have worked that they would have had four, but I just didn't think of it until, I don't know, yesterday. <laughs> so. So it's already a week into the knitting of it. Um, but I do still love working with this yarn, the Studio DK. It's a really nice weight. I've had to do some math because I can never get her gauge to match. I mean, I would have to knit on really, really tiny needles and I'm just not willing to do this. So since I had a whole sweater already knit in this fab in this yarn, 
And I just measured that gauge, did some math, and it's, I tried it on, it's fitting well. So, um, and right now it's all just stockinette for, you know, hopefully not too many more days, but um, yeah, so that's totally easy. Yeah, so all sorts of new things. And then once I finish that, I'll be, ex you know, and I'm kind of motivated to finish it because, I mean, it is the four day and along, but also I want to get back to my other two projects. We have a new baby in the family that I was not expecting, so I need a, another baby sweater and something else. I've got another kit coming <laughs> with a knit along involved. There's another gnome mystery come, coming out. So things are happening in the knitting world. You knitters know how to stay occupied, that's for sure. Yep. That is our skill. So yeah, so that is all for me. What is on the easel? Okay, the easel. I restarted Lemon Latitude, but I haven't really posted anything yet. Instagram feels like a, a great place for information and activism right now, and I feel weird like trying to change that beat. I don't know why. So for right now, I'm just collecting my paintings and doing the work and the research and the reading, and hopefully we'll find a way to start to unspool it again in a way that feels authentic to me. I did build a whole new sketchbook for Lemon Latitude. You know, I like to make them myself with a repurposed book cover and new spine tape and stitch it together. And it's so satisfying to work out of that sketchbook. I repurchased my CourtneySpillane.com domain, and I'm rebuilding my website. I don't know what's come over me. It is the most painful thing in the world, basically, uh, for me to do this. And I'm using uh, Squarespace and then about 15 tutorials on YouTube for how to build your website on Squarespace. You're going to take over my technical job here. Be no, because it's like, <laughs> it's just painful. The whole thing is so painful. I have a vision for how I want it to look. I have no idea how to get it there. It's like herding cats or I don't know what, but I do feel like it's important to have an internet presence beyond Instagram. And I think it will be good to have a newsletter and be able to point people to the podcast and, you know, just have like one general home for this consortium of projects I find myself making. And then the other thing that got me sort of excited to build the website was I get asked a lot of questions about gouache and how I use gouache paint and which brands do I like and which brushes do I have success with and how do I layer it? And it's gotten to the point where I just go into my DMs in Instagram and kind of cut and paste. I do this frequently enough that it makes me think I should have a, a better resource for people. And I'm not a gouache expert, but I am really comfortable with my own technique at this point. So I am making a zine or like a chapbook about gouache and I'm calling it squash paint because that's what my husband called gouache for many years. 
because you just didn't believe it was a real thing. This is like a tiny size of it. It'll be, it'll fit into like a business envelope, but it'll go into a lot of detail, like everything I know about gouache right now. And I suspect that there'll be a volume two or a volume three down the road as I build on my own skill set. I feel like it would be great to have it all in one place and I can point people towards it. And instead of, I mean, I spend a lot of time answering questions and I'm so happy to, but I also feel like people just want a basic resource for this stuff. So that's what's been on the easel. And what is literally on the easel is a giant weird painting of that character my son asked for. I was gonna ask what that was. And he's right over my shoulder. Yep. And that is totally he's just a work in progress. It's huge, it's 24 by 36, which is big for me. And it's on canvas and I'm painting in acrylic, which is not my favorite. And this is, it's helping me really realize that it's not my favorite. <laughs> both the canvas and the acrylic. I just, I don't like the texture of painting on canvas and I don't like the plasticky texture of the acrylic paint. However, this is perfect for this application because I'm sure in, you know, three weeks, he's going to be sick of this character and who knows what will happen to it. So it's a really great exercise for me to work so big and in fact, I'm really eager to finish it so that I can move back to a painting with oils and I want to do a giant seascape. And that is my plan for next week if they go camping. We're still waiting to see if they can get their wilderness permits, but if they go, then I'm going to have like five minutes of no one in my house and I'm going to attempt a really big seascape in oil on the easel and that might take more than the time that they're away but but at least you could get it started right so i can get it started and i can transition to oil it was even weird to use acrylic the past couple of days for this this character painting it just it's it's so inauthentic of me to paint a character that is not my own is he big enough now for your boy because he was concerned about the size, right? Well, initially, I went in the other night and I showed him one that was basically eight by 10. And he said, well, can he be standing up and can he be like over here and can you fix his horns? He's got a big fat child. I know. And can it be portrait? So then I came back in and I did a sketch at 11 by 14, I think. And went back in and talked to him about it. And, and he was like, that's perfect, but can it be bigger? <laughs> so then I came out with the giant two by three foot canvas. And he improved that size. Oh, it's, so it's, you know, it's just like working with a, a, an actual client. <sighs> so, yeah. <laughs> I guess. We'll see. We shall see. Hopefully it will be something I'm a little bit, I mean, even though, like I've said, this is not anything I'm going to share with the world. It's important to him. It's really meaningful to him. But it feels so weird to be doing a character. Yeah, fair enough. However, I'm really happy to be painting stuff about Japan. 
lots of right now it's lots of packaging stuff because I've been buying ingredients for cooking and then I keep wanting to do a seascape or something from I mean it is an island or several islands but I've never been there so it's hard to make sure that the what I'm trying to depict is actually that place because if you do a search for J Japan coastline Japan Sea coastline it could be Korea <laughs> so I'm just trying to be really careful about my sourcing and nice yeah hopefully I'll be able to share those soon cool look forward to seeing it all right on the table so I don't have too much of my cooking to talk about this week because Courtney is the best and she bought us matching cookbooks Vegetable Kingdom by Bryant Terry. And I had made one of his recipes. There was an article about him in uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, our local paper, a few months ago now. And I had made one of his curry, the curry that was featured in the article and talked about it a few episodes back. Um, and she went out and bought the cookbook for us. So we each have a copy now. Um, and we're going to do a cook along like we did with Tuesday nights from Milk Street Kitchen. Um, so we are working away on that. So a lot of what I've been cooking that's been amazing, spoiler alert, is from that book. Well, let, let's tell people, too, the reason why I bought two copies was that it's, it's Vegetable Kingdom. It's all vegetarian, vegan. So it's very friendly for your household. Yes. You know, and that's really what drew me towards it for a cook-along. And he's local to us. He's in Oakland as well, I think. So that's nice, too. So many things. So you will hear about that. I think we're going to not next episode, but the episode after. So episode 46. If you yeah, want there, to come along with us, feel free. There are some spices in there that, or spice blends that might be a little bit tricky to find. So we could pop. You make, they're in the back. He tells you how to make them. Yeah. So we can... We'll tell people about that if, if people are interested, you know, like where we're finding them or. Right. Or how I've been editing. I do a little bit of editing. editing. Yeah, that's fair. But so what I have been up to, I made strawberry ice cream, which was pretty fun. I've been thinking about it. We, part of our produce box, they had an option of adding on two clamshells of strawberries because it's strawberry season through delivery. So we've been getting a lot of strawberries and I'm, you know, trying to figure out different, other than just eating them, what to do with them. Strawberry ice cream seemed a good way to go. I haven't made ice cream in forever and we're having this lovely weather. It doesn't get much better than, than what we've been having in the city in the summer. So I made that and how to cook everything really does have a recipe for everything. <laughs> I kind of went in there just to see if they had ice cream and yep, they did. So I use that. And that was actually a really interesting recipe. Generally, when I make ice cream, I don't do a custard base. You know, I've been fine with, with a milk, cream, sugar flavorings. And so he had one that was a custard base. Or you could use cornstarch to give it the same silkiness, but without, I guess, the eggy taste. Um, since it was strawberry, it probably would have been fine. I think the strawberry would have negated that flavor. But I thought I would try it because working with a cornstarch slurry was much easier than separating the eggs and then figuring out what to do with the whites. So yeah, so that worked really well. Super simple, tasty. I mean, he said it would make about a quart. We went through it in one night. So <laughs> that was fine. Strawberries were delicious. 
Do you have an ice cream maker? Mm -hmm. I've had one for years, years and years. Um, and I just keep the base in my freezer. So it's always ready to go. It's San Francisco. It's generally, especially Freezing. where I am. Yeah, not exactly ice cream weather. So when I, when I lived other places where it was actually warm, I used it a lot more. But yeah, so it was fun to pull it out. The only downside is it is noisy. And I usually think about making it like while we're sitting down to dinner. So we have this going on during dinner, which is not ideal, but. I have a waxing, waning curiosity about an ice cream maker because my people are crazy about ice cream. In fact, the idea that the ice cream bowl would take up so much space in the fridge that could otherwise be occupied by ice cream is what's holding me back. <laughs> yeah. But it is like, yeah, either you don't store it in the freezer and you have to remember that you need it whenever you want. And it takes, I think, at least 24 hours to freeze. Yeah, um, sounds right. Yeah. So you have to do that kind of mental and I guess physical prep as well, or you keep it in there all the time and it's just taking up space. So that is what I've decided. And the actual making of it is super easy. And you did not buy an, an, a vanilla ice cream kit. I did not even need to buy a kit or a strawberry ice cream kit either. <laughs> I think they had one of those as well. So yes, kit free, all homemade. My only issue was, and I, I had uh, like half a carton of cream left. And that was also part of the impetus is I had these strawberries that I needed to use. I had, you know, half a cup of cream that I had nothing to do with. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'll mix it with my whole milk. It'll be great and rich. His base is three cups of liquid. So if you're doing a vanilla, you use two cups of half and half or milk and a cup of cream. But when you make the strawberries, the cup of strawberries pureed is the liquid. So I didn't fully put all that together until I had already poured out and started mixing things into my milk. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get to use my cream. <laughs> so I still have to figure out what to do with that. Oh, That's dear. how my world works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. I guess I could just make some more ice cream. Yeah, I don't see a problem here. Yeah, no, I could try the vanilla. I could try making a custard-based one because I really never do that. And I could make some little meringues to go with, to, like crumble on top. That could be delicious. I'll have to think about this. Project. And then I also posted pictures of our 4th of July lunch, which I try and do when we're home. Not really cooking, but delicious. My husband's family has a beach they always go to for 4th of July and they have races for the kids and it's wholesome family fun and they serve lunch for years it was in the parking lot <laughs> and you had to truck up to the to the parking lot and then recently they have started doing it on the beach and I assume this year none of it is happening but it was always a hot dog always a package of chips always a package of M&Ms you know soda options and the one thing I did not have was the watermelon. I didn't notice it at our store, which seems sort of odd, but maybe they were hiding it somewhere. So I like to make that. And the problem was I bought all the items earlier in the week and tried to hide them in the back of the pantry behind other items. Those people found everything. The bag of chips was ripped open. The M&Ms were attacked. The Cokes were like, I was like, people, hold off till Saturday. Then you can go crazy. Don't ruin my lunch. It all worked out. I even found gluten-free plant-based hot dogs and gluten-free buns for my husband. So he got to experience it all as well. 
Very nice. Good job. It's nice to have those food memories and yeah, keep traditions alive in, in that kind of way. And then the boys have been cooking away. I love this summer children cooking thing. The curry biryani that Boy 2 made turned out delicious. We had to make all the components. It would be great if you had the rice and the curry left over and you just throw it together. We did not, so we did make it all that night, but it worked out okay. This is a Jamie Oliver recipe. And did not feel like it was going to be enough rice, but it actually worked out great. We had a couple layers. It was pretty delicious. And Big Kid made a beef and broccoli bowl. Basically a stir fry. That was what he envisioned. He's something they have at school, much like your kid. And he wanted to bring it home. I was like, oh. And this was my normal stir fry recipe, which is sort of a, I think I got it from how to cook without a book. So it's, here's your basic. You can change it up as you want. Do a stir fry. And it was probably the most delicious version I've had in a long time, which was very interesting. Um, We did beef and broccoli for us and tofu and broccoli for my husband. So two pans, same sauce. Everything the same except for the protein. Boy 2 did it sausage pasta carbonara, which uses sausage instead of pancetta, which is what you usually use with carbonara. I think we had too much pasta. I didn't exactly check the recipe before doing two pans worth of stuff, so it wasn't quite enough sauce. So I probably need to work on that for next time, but it was a nice combo. Um, and he puts a bunch of parsley in there as well. So that was kind of felt like we were getting a vegetable. That was exciting. Uh, And then he also did chorizo quesadillas, which, you know, super simple, but taught him some some nice skills. Excellent. Yeah, keeping them hot in the oven while we're waiting for them all to finish. And yeah, so that was good. And that's pretty much what we've had on the table. Great. (laughs) My children cooking. Good stuff. That's brilliant, frankly. I have been dabbling a wee little bit from Vegetable Kingdom, but we're going to save those for our big Vegetable Kingdom reveal. I have been cooking a little bit of different Japanese recipes. I went to Omnivore when I picked up our Vegetable Kingdom books, and I got Atsuko's Japanese Kitchen on their recommendation. And it is so spot on perfect for what I was looking for. Home cooking, classic Japanese, you know, just the the home comfort food type things that you would find in many a home kitchen. I decided that my first, I make rice bowls all the time. And so refining my sauces for that or just the flavor palette making it a little more authentic so i went to japantown with a list of items that i needed for pork gyoza the little dumplings and then some other flavors just for the general rice bowl type of of thing that i like to prepare and i had so much fun at nijia is it nijia or nijaya i think it's nijia I went really early in the morning because I knew I wanted to be in there for a little while and reading packages carefully so that I wasn't buying MSG laden stuff. And it was very quiet. So I felt pretty safe doing that. And I spent a lot of time looking at the pickled plums and at different ponzu sauces. And I bought some beautiful rice and I found the wrappers for the gyoza and they had so many different kinds and a lot of them did have 
MSG in them. So I had to sort of look through every single package and, and it was kind of one of the best field trips I've had since, since quarantine. And then I came home with all of these different flavors and we've been having so much fun adding them to things. And I made the pork gyoza, which is a really simple recipe with like ground pork and Napa cabbage and ginger and garlic. And I'm forgetting what else is in there. And then you, you know, you kind of crimp off the little wrapper and then fry them in the skillet. Well, I only have like one nonstick skillet and it has this weird texture on the bottom and that kind of didn't work. And I was so disappointed because they stuck to the bottom of the pan and they tasted excellent, but they just, some of them looked scraggly. So that made me upset, but I probably made a hundred and they ate them all. And the cookbook was funny. She said that she makes about 20 per person. So it makes sense that I would make a hundred for my foursome and the teenagers would go above and beyond. So that was my foray into the pork gyoza. I made some pickled red onions, just a really simple refrigerator pickle. And we've been putting them on everything. Like we've been putting them on quesadillas and the rice bowls and eggs. And that's been really super easy. I ordered a couple jars of salsa from my friend Joy, who's making, one of her dreams was to start a salsa company. And when we went into quarantine, you know, within a couple weeks, she was like, well, here I am. I can make salsa and deliver it around. So she and her friend are making salsa and delivering it in San Francisco. And the first couple times I didn't order any because I just, I was in quarantine mode. And then they did a fundraiser for our local Bay Area Black Lives Matter. And that did really well. And so after that, I felt like she's on a roll and I feel bad that I hadn't supported her. And so I ordered some salsa last week and it was amazing. So great. Uh, a really well-balanced salsa. It's gluten-free, of course. And I got a Rojo and the Verde. And I will, I'm not allowed to say her, her salsa name on the air because it sounds, it's like every time I like some kind of condiment, it has the B word in it. So she is salsa, B-I-T-C-H-E-S 415 on Instagram. And that's Joy. And I'll have a link to her stuff. <laughs> if you're a Bay Area local San Francisco person, Joy's salsa is extraordinary. I'm, I can't even think of a correlative salsa because nobody else does it quite like, I mean, it's just this wonderful slurry that she's got going. I typed in salsa in an Instagram search. It came up as number two. Excellent. It's pretty good. I'll put a link to it in our, in our Instagram so that people know. So that was a huge success, but my real crowning achievement food-wise this week was my heirloom recipe. Yes. So last week I got it into my head that I was going to do the heirloom recipe. And the one that came to mind first was this thing we used to make when we were kids, my sister and I called toffee bars. 
And we have this recipe from, I don't, we got it out of the Betty Crocker cookbook, you know, this disheveled cookbook that we have. And they, the texture of the bar is sort of dense and fudgy and you just kind of shove it all into a pan and then you cut them up into squares. Super easy to make. Well, we've been trying to recreate this recipe on and off for some time. And I looked everywhere. I don't have that version of a Betty Crocker cookbook anymore. And I just was having trouble finding the recipe. So I I typed it in and I pulled it up and I compared it with my sister and she said, yeah, that sort of looks familiar. So off I went and I baked it and it came out beautiful, but really sky high and full of air. And it had, you know, an entire egg in it. And it had, I think, baking powder, which didn't sound right to me, but it was as close as we had seen thus far. And it was just a cookie bar. I mean, it was excellent, but it was just a cookie bar. It wasn't what we were looking for. So my sister scoured a little bit longer than me, and she found a recipe that called for no baking powder and just the egg yolk, and that clicked in her head, and she said, remember, that's how we learned how to separate eggs. I didn't remember that. So she um, sent me the newer version, and it took me a couple days, but when I made the newer version, it's so easy. You just, it's like flour, butter, brown sugar, the egg yolk, salt, vanilla, I think, and chocolate chips. You, it's called a toffee bar because you can put toffee chips in it, but we never did. When we were kids, it was just toss in a handful of chocolate chips and call it good. Um, my sister used to make this recipe all the time. And she never measured anything. So sometimes they would be excellent. And sometimes it would be like an oil slick on the top because she put too much butter in. And sometimes it would be dry as a bone because she only put a stick in. You know, like it was, she's, she was just never measured anything. And our mom used to say, stop wasting the ingredients, you know, like all the time. And it was just the simplest recipe. So my sister and I laugh about the stop wasting ingredients constantly because we often would say to each other when we were kids, when we get out of this house, we're never going to cook again. Like we're just going to eat in restaurants for the rest of our lives. And then, you know, what happens, you get out and the cooking is in your blood and you end up cooking. But one of our running jokes to this day is stop wasting ingredients. So I wasted ingredients the first time and made the cookie bar. And then the second time, yeah, the second time it was absolute perfection. They, the kids ate them all. And I, I don't like the edge, the edge pieces. And I really hate the corners. So I always, and I cut the, I cut the bars so that the edge pieces are like nice and big so that they go for the edge and corner pieces and they leave me the middle. I came downstairs and that big teenager had eaten like one, two, three of the middle pieces. And there was like one tiny little middle cube left. (sighs) It's probably for the best, but still. (laughs) So heirloom recipe Take one and take two accomplished. That's awesome. (laughs) It's much better than mine. 
<laughs> oh, I completely forgot about my falafel fail. Nathan's birthday was this week and he wanted that, you know, I've been making those um, chicken and tzatziki wraps. Mm-hmm. I talked about them last week. Well, this week I thought, oh, it'd be fun to make falafels to go alongside of this Middle Eastern dish. And everything that I read was like, hey, don't use canned garbanzo beans. Use dried beans, soak them for 24 hours, and then, you know, make your falafel. Well, I didn't have 24 hours, and I thought, I will just super dry these garbanzo beans out, you know. So I drained the cans and, like, blotted them and, like, let them air dry for a couple hours on the counter and was like, I'll show them. No, it was, like, soup. You couldn't even scoop these things. And I'm so kicking myself that the people of the world knew far better than me who's never made a falafel before how to make a falafel (laughs) shocking how that works the flavor was great but it was like that time I made the potato pancakes and they were super soft and I couldn't get them to like hold their shape same scenario Mm. I tell you but I also think that deep frying them would have made them more successful and I don't have a deep fryer so that's one that I might pick up again in the future, but falafel so fail. more falafel pancakes or they just didn't work at all? It's more like falafel dip. <laughs> <laughs> it's still in the fridge. I don't know what to do with it. Could you add maybe chickpea flour? Yes, that would be a brilliant idea. I did add potato flour, yeah. um, but I didn't want to add too, too much because I thought like after uh, a quarter of a cup <laughs> and it yeah. still didn't hold together. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. It's a fail. You know, it might work if I like dump it into a loaf pan and just bake it off. <laughs> okay. I wonder if that would work. Well, that is the excitement from my kitchen. That's pretty exciting. Totally. On the nightstand, I read my Antonia. What'd you think? It's okay. <laughs> By Willa Cather. Courtney's talked about this and you re- reread it recently. Um, I reread and- it at the beginning of quarantine because I think I just wanted something, not escapist, but I was having trouble getting into other books. Yeah, familiarity can be yeah very comforting. But I had never read it. And so you had been talking about it and one of the book clubs they had read it this past year as well. So they were mentioning it and just seemed like something I should read. So it takes place late 1800s, prairies. Narrator is a young man who lives with his grandparents and there's a neighbor girl that arrives with her family the same day he does and kind of how their lives continue to intersect. I guess I didn't like him very much. So I had a hard time with the whole book. And his vision of her seemed very, one not one-dimensional exactly, but he was very idealistic about her and, and just seemed to have a vision of her that maybe wasn't actually her, what she was. So that kind of annoyed me. But the writing, you know, the writing I thought was really well done. And it was an interesting peek into that experience in the country at that time. You know, the change from the farming to the city and... There were parts I liked. It was not probably my most favorite book overall, but I'm glad to have read it. I'm, I'm just so curious why 
Willa Cather chose his voice to narrate her story like that. Yes. I, I don't remember discussing it in school. I'm sure I did. Um, but I don't like, it's something that I would actually like to read some scholarly essay about because I remember being surprised. I think when I was a girl reading it, I was captivated by the, the, the setting Mm-hmm. And because I didn't grow up in a place like that, I grew up in the woods and life was similar, but you know, those wide, vast open plains were just, I couldn't imagine it really. Yeah. And so that part of it, that that's what sticks with me from whenever I read it in middle school or high school previously. And then I was really surprised to pick it up and that it be a man's voice as the narrator. Yeah. Because I did not remember that from high school or whenever I, so I have to say that, you know, parts of his voice really bugged me, but I also thought, I kept thinking, why did she choose that, that lens for Antonia? And I still don't have a good answer, but I'm glad you read it. Yeah, no, I'm glad I read it too. Maybe I'll do a little research for us. There's got to be a good essay or two. Or 12,000. <laughs> that, that would be a good discussion point. Yeah, for me, it was a little off-putting, the whole thing. I then read Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onwachi and Joshua David Stein, which, as much as I don't like memoirs, and I still feel that way, I really like this one. I think it's just the narrative. I don't know why the first person in a memoir annoys me and in a traditional fiction book. It doesn't. I've not figured that out yet, but it does. But his life is amazing. He's probably best known for being a chef on Top Chef, or at least that's how I know him. He just turned 30 last year and has had so much happen in his life. He grew up in the Bronx and was involved with gangs and got kicked out of college for selling drugs um, at like 19. His mom was a caterer and he lived in Nigeria with his grandfather for two years when he was 11 and 12, I think. And his grandparents were from Louisiana and Texas and his step-grandfather was from Trinidad and then his dad was from Nigeria. So his food experiences just growing up with a mom who was a, was a chef all over the place. And he got a couple of restaurant jobs trying to get his life back together or at least give a direction, and then ended up cooking on a uh, oil cleanup ship in the Gulf and loved it, like realized he could connect with these workers through the food. And they were so appreciative. They had a similar culinary background with Louisiana. So he really got into that, ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America, did internships in some of the top New York City restaurants, ended up opening his own Michelin aspiring place in DC while he was and was working on that while he was on Top Chef. So it was kind of amazing. And he included recipes at the end of every chapter. So that's always fun. Um, so he had just, I mean, his life story is just amazing. So I really enjoyed that. If you like food writing, I think it's a good, good one to check out. Um, and I'd heard a lot of good things about it and it, it was very nice. So I recommend that one. Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onwachi. I've been addicted to that chef's table show on netflix oh i haven't seen that one. Oh, it's so good right. why why are you so behind with the netflix cooking shows great british baking 
salt, fat, I'm, acid, heat. Yeah, I know. Monica. I've been rewatching re The Wire because familiar <laughs> things are comfortable. And I want to take a chance on something new. The food things are comfortable too. There's food in this one. So carry on. Fine. Carry on. <laughs> um, and then I reread The River by Peter Heller for book club. It is oh, still fun. amazing. So actually, yeah, this one I had suggested as a good summer read because it's not terribly long. It's also fast paced. And as it turns out, there's not a ton to talk about, but there is things that you can talk about. Um, everybody in the book club liked it. So yay. <laughs> not that that's what makes a good book club. Often disagreement is the way to go, but that was very satisfying as a new member. So I talked about this last year. You talked about it last year. It's two best friends from college have taken some time off to do a canoe trip down a river in Canada and they're about halfway through their month-long trip and realize there is a huge giant massive forest fire coming and they don't have a sat phone so they there's nothing really to do but speed it up and get out of there. They're both experienced outdoorsmen, grew up fishing, camping, hunting. They know what to do. They have supplies. It's all good. As they're hurrying, they hear a man and a woman arguing, but there's fog and wind and they can't get to shore to warn them about the fire. Later, the man shows up by himself, says his wife is missing, and it goes on from there. So it's definitely a dramatic book, kind of, you know, adventure. The The pictures he draws are amazing. You could totally see it being turned into a movie with very little alterations being made. Is that happening? Do you know? I have not heard that, but I mean, can't you? It's like, it's oh, yeah, totally it's very, movie. It's yeah. very, very like that. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was still lovely to read. And then I haven't entirely finished, but I have like maybe a half an hour more of reading to do on this. So I thought I would discuss it now. The Immortals of Tehran by Ali Aragi, who is, and I can't remember if he, it was written in English. He is Iranian. I'm not sure if he's Iranian American. I think he's teaching here. This one I came across in my library feed. It's gotten fabulous reviews. Not sure I'm fully on board. It is the story of one particular family and especially one man in the family in Iran. It starts about World War II and I'm almost up to the revolution of 79. So it's a family saga, political history. The main guy is a poet. Um, trying to be a politician, and there is also some magical realism thrown in there. The family apparently has a feud with cats who are actually behind the revolution. That makes complete sense. <clears throat> so, <laughs> yeah, it's a very, it's an interesting book. Um, I don't have any problem picking it up, but I find myself putting it down a lot as well. There's a lot of things that happens. It's that sweep of saga and history. So I do want to find out how it's going to end, but I don't know, but I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily having to read the next thing, having to read the next thing. You know, it's not that I can't put it down. And the magical stuff feels a little odd at times. Like you can't quite tell if the cat thing is a crazy family story or it is actually true. And there are, I would say, a lot of trigger warnings that should be issued for this book for suicide and violence against children and torture and it's not it's it, it's almost worse because it's not throughout the book it just all of a sudden happens and then they move on which I guess is kind of how these things happen in life but it is sort of disturbing when you're reading this book with magical cats and whatnot and all of a sudden 
there's a pretty violent and descriptive suicide that I was not expecting. So that is something to be aware of. But it is a very imaginative book, and I wouldn't necessarily say I'm enjoying it, but I am, I'm glad I'm reading it, and I do want to find out what happens, which is, you know, I think important in books. Gotta have a good story. That is The Immortals of Tehran by Ali Aragi. I'm going to make note of it for when I, I'm hoping to do Iran when I do Lim and Latitude, sometime with Lim and Latitude, yeah. because the food is really compelling. So remind me of that when I edge towards Iran. Will do. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of beautiful descriptions of the countryside and the city and their lives and just... The family dynamic is really interesting. Lots of good stuff in there. And okay. be aware of. How about you? Lots of good stuff for uh, Japan. When I decided that I was going to move back into this project, I did panic a little bit because the libraries are closed. And so I decided that I was going to support my local bookstores and just order the stuff for Japan. I don't know that I can afford to do that for every country, but for the time being, I feel like I need to keep moving forward. So I re first read Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. And this is a curious little novel about a woman named Kiko who works at a convenience store in Tokyo and she just lives for the consistency and the predictability of the convenience store. I suspect, and it's not spelled out, but I suspect that this character would be considered, you know, socially awkward or perhaps on some kind of personality spectrum. She, the novel itself reminds me of Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine or the the elegance of the hedgehog character you know where they're just they're unexpected or they're just themselves and they're they aren't cookie cutter characters and so everybody wants Kiko to have a a relationship and get married so that she can quit her job at the convenience store but really that job gives her this tremendous purpose and everything she does is in service of the schedule and the predictability of the job. And then this guy enters the scene and sort of upends her sense of self and her world. And she's really conflicted because of how people's expectations of her change because this guys in the picture and I think what I appreciate about the book for so I appreciate the book for so many different things it's very charming and you want Kiko to have her her sense of self and her sense of purpose you're just rooting for her the whole time and I like that feeling and it's funny it's funny to see what the inside of a Tokyo convenience store feels like from her perspective and how she watches um, the regular salary men come and go and the women with their high heels and how she anticipates their needs. And I don't know, I thought it was quirky and charming. I do think that if you liked Eleanor Oliphant or The Elegance of the Hedgehog, that this is 
kind of in line with those, with that kind of character. Just, yeah, a really unique, not cookie cutter character. I think it was really good. Then I read A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. And this is a newer book. And Ruth Ozeki lives in the Pacific Northwest and she's Japanese. And her book feels, it's a, it's a little bit metaphysical, I guess, because the character named Ruth, who lives in the Pacific Northwest, finds some materials on the beach that they suspect have floated over after the Fukushima earthquake. And everybody in the community is surprised because they weren't expecting the debris to arrive on their shores so soon. They knew that they would see debris from the earthquake and the tsunami, but it, it came sooner than they thought. And that upends their timetable for when to look for things from that disaster. And the things that wash up on the beach are like a journal and so, and a watch and I think a couple other things, letters that are encased in like a Hello Kitty lunchbox and then double sealed in Ziploc bags and whatever, all protected. And so Ruth, whose, mo- whose mother, I guess both of her parents were Japanese, but um, she like embarks on reading the girls' journals and letters and having them, she gets help having some of it translated because the, co- the calligraphy is kind of old and it's hard for her to read. Instead of using a blank journal, she had found, the girl in, in Tokyo had found a journal that the cover looks like an old Proust book, but really inside is this teenager's journal. And so as she's reading the journal, there's like a, a separate narrative of what's really happening with, I think her name is now the girl in Japan and you're getting her narrative and then you're seeing like what's going on with Ruth and how they're intersecting. And you're supposed to, I think, suspend your disbelief for this sort of time bending thing. And that's, that's hard for me. Like I always have a hard time with nonlinear narrative, but I did want to find out what happened with now's parents and, you know, her dad is really troubled and she has this super charming grandmother who is a Buddhist nun. Have you read this? Did you recommend it? And I totally forgot, or maybe you mentioned it because I was I mean, looking I read for it. I read it a long time ago, so I haven't yeah. talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. Maybe it's, I mentioned it. Yeah. It's, um, it's been, it was really it was really interesting and I'm so glad I stuck with it till the end. And what I liked about it, I was a little hesitant to read it because I of course wanted something that was set in Japan so that I could really get a sense of Japan, but it was satisfyingly spent a lot of time in Japan, um, especially in the prefecture um, north of Tokyo where she was with her grandmother and seeing that landscape through her eyes was important to me and getting a sense of that Buddhist nun lifestyle was really beautiful and the onsen, the bath culture. I really liked that. I thought it gave me a great picture of, of that. That was my favorite part of it. So that was the Ruth Ozeki. Then I was listening to a book called The Memory Police by Yoko Ogama. 
And this was weird, <laughs> compelling, compellingly weird. Um, it's like imaginative fiction. There's this unnamed island with this unnamed character. And on this unnamed island, they have an epidemic of forgetting. And initially, it's this girl lives with her parents and her mom, who is a sculptor, goes missing or gets taken by the memory police. And then her dad, who is an ornithologist, he passes away. And then shortly thereafter, birds disappear. And she's so glad that her dad passed away before the birds disappeared, because then what would he do? And so it's at first, the islanders feel like it's this innocuous, like little things, you know, like fragrance, perfume disappears. And then our, our main character is a novelist, and she's writing a novel that is super weird about a girl who's taking typing lessons, and she gets trapped by her typist boyfriend or her instructor boyfriend, and he steals her voice in a in a you know very imaginative fiction way and so there are these two corollary stories happening in between them you're really not sure where you are in reality and and it's all it's kind of like magical realism but it's it's kind of creepy at the same in a in a it reminded me of the japanese ghost stories where it's not scary like American ghost stories. It's just sort of creepy in a ghostly, spooky way. Unsettling? Yes. Thank you. Well, the novel gets darker and darker and darker. And the ending is like crazy good. <laughs> and I don't want to give anything away because it feels like profoundly mysterious and unsettling to grab your word. Hmm. It made me, it's, it's a similar, or it was compared in the New Yorker or the New York Times, I forget which one, like Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, where he's taken something that was real and mystifies it, you know, or like Exit West by Mohsen Hamid, where the, the portals to another world were how they made their leap around the globe. This is like, you have to suspend your, your d belief, right? And, um, and go with Yoko Ogama's, um, just go with this crazy world and be along for the ride. It was super rewarding. It was just really great. And then for my book group, we did My Ex-Life by Stephen McCauley. And this is um, a totally different book for me. This is fiction. David is gay, and he was married to Julia like 20 years ago before he realized he was gay. And he lives in San Francisco, and Julia lives in some port town north of Boston. Um, you know, kind of like maybe, well, Hyannis is south, but... Um, somebody in book group compared it to Hyannis. So like a fancy port town or um, like trying, trying to be, you know, but it still has locals and, you know, it has like the summer crowd, but it has locals and it, 
has, it takes place predominantly in this port town on the East Coast. So Julia got divorced or is getting divorced. She has a teenage daughter. She connects with David, who's in San Francisco, because her do- he is um, um, like a college counselor. He helps kids choose their colleges and, and write their essays and that kind of thing. And so she enlists his help to work with, or the daughter calls him directly. I forget how that happens. Anyway, Julia's trying to run an Airbnb in their town and, you know, kind of get over her collapsed marriage. And David is booted from his rent control department in San Francisco and his ex-lover is getting married and they're buying the property that he was living in. So it's kind of like real estate fun, you know, East meets West real estate. And then this relationship of these two that were former, who were formerly married. And it, it, it comes across predominantly lighthearted. The teenager has some crazy stuff going on. Julia really needs this she needs to buy out her ex the house that she's living in and running this airbnb out of but the entire community is like really anti airbnb because they you know everybody's got an opinion and you know how those small towns are so she's having a hard time getting together the cash to make that work and david and this and this is my perspective on it now David sort of swoops in and tries to rescue everything. He, he tries to, you know, they haven't seen each other in 20 years and they're mending their relationship and apologizing for, you know, their brief and awkward marriage. And he's trying to get her daughter into college and he's trying to help her fix up this Airbnb so that it's successful. And, and I feel like, it's a really interesting novel. I just wish that Julia had more agency over her own life in it. And that's my, that's my sticking point. Like David is a great character, but he's, he kind of rides in like a hero. And I want Julia to be, I want her to have some more power over her own story. And that's, that's my own little pet peeve with it. But I think the two places are really well rendered and the story with Julia's daughter is like he, he handled the teenager really well. It it was good. It was a good and different pace from all of the um, anti-racism reading that I'm doing and the Japanese fiction. And so it was a different, easier place to spend some time for a little while. Cool. Yeah. That's interesting. You've got some good ones in there. Yeah, for sure. And more than I've read in a while. That was, yeah. a good, it was a good bit of reading for me. Yeah. All right. Bingo. Quick review. We started on May 22nd. It will end on September 7th. The one rule is you need to post a photo of your completed bingo card with a, you know, a row, column, diagonal on either Instagram with the hashtag CCRR Summer Bingo 2020 or on Ravelry if you can get on there. Um, in our bingo thread in our RAF group. And yeah, that's the only rule. We'd love to see what you're up to, but that is not a requirement. Let us know if you have any questions. If you still need a bingo card, 
let us know. Um, you can take a screenshot from our stories of the bingo card or contact us on direct message um, or email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. And we do need an actual email address to send you a PDF that then you can print out or play with on your computer, whatever works for you. Yeah. So I did, well, see, now I have another one I'm sort of counting as my heirloom recipe. I think I've actually checked it off because I had my cheesy taco shells and then now I have my 4th of July feast. Yeah. So I've got two sort of, it's kind of like a full heirloom <laughs> recipe. I'm still trying, if I find something that inspires me more, I will definitely make that. Um, and then I did my farmer's market one. Oh, they, good. Yeah, they started a new farmer's market near my kid's middle school or former middle school um, just this past weekend. So a bunch of us walked down there and wore our masks and socially, well, well, sort of social, you know, as much as possible to this nicely sized little farmer's market. And I, when did this happen? So the new, the Vegetable Kingdom book, I've been flipping through and they had a section on kohlrabi, which I had been seeing as an option for my produce box. But then the most recent sign-up day did not have the kohlrabi. So I was like, oh, well, okay, whatever. Because I'm planning to order it and then make some of those recipes. But then they had it at the farmer's market. So I said, oh, give me that, please. So I made a kohlrabi and apple slaw, which was pretty delicious. But we'll talk about more about that later. But that was my actually going to a farmer's market, picking up stuff and using that. So that was pretty fun. Great. What kind of stuff did you do? If anything. I have a, I have a few. Oh yeah, because you have your heirloom. I started a new project with this canvas, acrylic on canvas. So I'm definitely giving myself credit for that. I went to the bookstore in Japantown and got a bunch of magazines and periodicals. And it was so fun. First of all, I don't read Japanese. I don't know if anybody knows that, but shocking. I don't read Japanese at all. But I did read an online magazine called Kokeshi Trends, which our friend and listener Kelly D pointed me towards because her daughter wrote an editorial about Kokeshi dolls, the little wooden Japanese dolls. And so I read their online magazine and it was so interesting. And I have some Kokeshi dolls that I was able to ID sort of the family that they come from, from the magazine. And then I read the Tokyo Weekender. There is like an online magazine in English that talks about Tokyo life from a very, I, I, what I would feel is like a really Japanese perspective. They weren't really talking about the U.S. at all. And it was, some of it was, I didn't understand the context of, but it was just fascinating to read this magazine. And then I got Breathe from the UK. And that is more of like a lifestyle meditation art magazine. And I got, oh, when I was in Japantown, I picked up a copy of Traveler's Times, which is the Traveler's Notebook uh, periodical. And I think they do those quarterly. And so they were featuring shopping in, I think, Madrid or Barcelona. And I didn't know that they did that quarterly. So that was really fun to find. And I'll keep an eye out for that. 
And then I discovered this magazine called Stranger's Guide. And it's, I think it's based in Austin. I'm not totally positive about that. But they do one issue about a foreign country. And they, instead of sending Americans or, you know, other people dropping them into the country and writing, they find artists and writers from in country to build this magazine and then they share it with with us. And so their current issue is about South Korea, but I'm totally going to grab it because I know that I'll probably do some little project about South Korea in the future. And it's really beautiful. So that was the read the new to me magazine and periodical. And I had so much crazy fun with that. I also read a book set in a foreign place. And that was the convenience store woman, which was squarely in Tokyo. And then I cooked my heirloom recipes, toffee bars, take one and take two. And that's it. <laughs> That's a lot. Do you have a bingo? No, because, <laughs> because I, um, yes, I do have a bingo. <laughs> I have a bingo across. Yeah. Nice. And I'm almost have one down. I have to go to the farmer's market though. I'm going for the blackout. So fair enough. Yeah. Well, and our listeners have been posting as well. We had two people posting in Ravelry. Craft Buzz had our, the first bingo that I have seen. So that was exciting. And she had a, made a cucumber salad that her mom used to make. And, and actually, I'm sorry, I'm assuming it's a her because most people in Ravelry are, but I apologize if I am getting that wrong. She finished a dress that she has been sewing. That's awesome. Tried Tunisian crochet as her new technique, which is pretty awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. Oh, she um, must have gone down that last row. Is that right? Um, Did she post yeah. the bingo card? Yes, it is posted. Fine. I didn't notice which row it was, but that sounds like it. Um, and then Soulmate on Ravelry has almost had a blackout and just needed a few things. Um, and she also asked some questions about the squares that she wasn't sure so I answered those. Um, and again, if you guys have any questions, we are happy to answer them because it's hard to condense <laughs> what you're asking into a tiny little square. There's only so much information we can put in there. I but will bet. Like, eh, if it works for you, yeah, all good. Totally. I bet our young listener, Miss Maggie, is very far along in her blackout. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Stephanie Eddy on Instagram posted again and she had a couple loaves of bread I think they were sourdough and then she was going to be making cornbread and she was trying out some, a new flavor of beans which were Mayo Cuba beans um, which I haven't heard of but I'm, they, I checked them out and they they sound pretty tasty so I might I might need to just I mean I've got the instant pot so it's not like cooking beans is complicated I feel like I need to put a rancher gordo order in because vegetable kingdom there was a specific kind of bean that he said to order so i think i need to make that work so yeah so thank you for posting and sharing your adventures with us and we hope everyone else will jump in and do that as well because it's super fun to see what everyone's up to it makes me feel slightly accomplished <laughs> to fill in a square i mean it's ridiculous but like i was so happy to get the toffee bar thing down so that I could check it off. 
So those are from the Betty Crocker cookbook or the cookie book? Oh, I don't know. We had a Betty Crocker cookbook when we were kids. It was probably like 1981. And it's not in, I have like a newer Betty Crocker cookbook, but it's not in there. And it's, I don't know what happened to that recipe. Um, but my sister found that one online and I'll put, put it in the show notes, the one from my sister. And I think it is from 1981. I think that that's when we had it. I mean, that we would have been really young then, but, but I think that that was the year that ours was published and maybe it just didn't make the cut. I don't know. They do sound delicious though. So yeah, everybody keep bingoing and make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.